you have to make mistakes because that's the sort of edge of your seat drama that being in a band should be. But I understand why people have terrible drug problems and alcohol problems because a lot of the entertainment industry is finding out it's nothing like you thought it would be. I had my battles with record companies back in the 80s and, and won the, the right to make the records I wanted. I spent 10 years of my life with no money. Trying to get a record deal was so I was my own boss and I could do what I want. Because you're altering the DNA of everything you've been listening to. Altering it, bringing it up to date, modifying it and turning it into um, you know, a kind of higher art form. I mean, we're all expected to be videographers and influencers and all of this at the same time. And I'm not any of those. I'm a songwriter. For every Coldplay, there's 10 other Coldplays that all got signed in the same year. You know, yeah, there's a lot of broken dreams in the business. I was nowhere. You know, I had, I'd lost my record deal, massively in debt, and no obvious signs that I would ever be able to recover that, you know, because a career looked to be pretty much finished. I was terribly uh, ambitious, really, both in terms of getting on top of the pops, but also in terms of getting my vision to come true. There is no formula to having a hit record. It happens, and it's probably 60% luck, 30% talent, and 10% timing. Making a hit record is tough, but maintaining success is another skill entirely. On The Art of Longevity, we explore the artist's experience of the music business from the inside. I want to find out what separates those artists and bands that have survived decades in the music business from all those who've fallen by the wayside. We follow a narrative inspired by a quote from Brett Anderson of Suede, who said that all successful artists have followed a similar career arc, like Stations of the Cross. The struggle, success, excess, disintegration, and if you're lucky, enlightenment. With insights and stories for music fans, aspiring musicians and creators, this is The Art of Longevity. The Art of Longevity is presented with Bowers & Wilkins, the revered British premium audio brand. Ron Sexsmith, welcome to The Art of Longevity. Oh, thanks, Keith. Nice to be here. How are you, Ron? And where are you? I'm in my house in uh, Stratford, Ontario, Canada. We just got back home from a you know, pretty extensive tour of America and then Europe. And so we're just kind of readjusting to home life. And how does that work? Does it usually take you a bit of time to decompress? Or do the, the songs start to surge up pretty quickly? Yeah, I mean, it takes a little while. At first, you're in a bit of disbelief, really, you know, that you're home and you're in your own bed. And, uh, you know, you, you go through almost like the... A grieving process, you know, because it's like, uh, you know, for so long you had all these shows, and then all of a sudden you don't really know what to do with yourself. I'm a guy, I really, I really need to have a routine. I have to kind of walk to town every day. And when all that all goes out the window when you tour. So I'm just sort of re uh, discovering my, you know, what my routine is. And yeah, I mean, I, I'm just really happy to be home. You know, traveling isn't as easy as it used to be. So the, the shows went really well, but the touring was hard and the traveling was hard. Yeah, I hear that. And I hear that a lot from artists. I mean, you're solo, right? You take on everything when you tour. It's just me and my wife. And, and I mean, she's driving and road managing and all that kind of stuff. So we're both working very hard. And I, and I have to do the whole show by myself. And we don't even, this previous tour, we haven't even, you know, we didn't have a sound man with us. So every night I'm using a different working with a different person and, and, and that can be, you know, a little bit out of your comfort zone, but I think we were a good, a good team, you know, like the show, it went really smooth and, uh, but it is hard to, without my band, it's a little more nerve wracking. And then at the same time, a little more satisfying at the end of the show, if it, if it goes well. Yeah. I guess you're well practiced at it now because it's a way of touring that a lot of artists who've played in bands are now having to get used to because for the reasons you mentioned. I mean, for one thing, the economics of the whole thing, it's got to be tenable to tour, but also it's just the practicalities. I mean, I, I saw a, an artist called Guy Su I Kol, who was Turkish, 
And she's got an amazing band, but there are only three of them on stage because two of them couldn't get visas. It's just, you know, I guess it's becoming part of the course. Yeah, I mean, and that's the other thing. I mean, America was so expensive just to even get a work permit to go down there. You know, probably more than what we actually made from the shows, you know. So I wish they would make it easier for musicians because it's not like we're stealing other people's jobs or anything. You know, we're just trying to make a living. But yeah, you know, I, I I played with a band for a long time and I had a lot of fun, but I wasn't making any money because everyone else was, you know, because you're playing, paying for the flights and hotels and all that stuff. So, yes, yeah, so we had to find a different way to do it. Thankfully, I can do it this way. I know a lot of people that won't go by themselves, you know, even if it would be beneficial. You know, I know like Steve Earl's coming out for the first time by himself right now on this tour. And I don't know if that's for financial reasons or not, but if the venue's right, if they have a nice piano, if it's good listening room, it's it's nice to go out by yourself and take your time and play the songs. And, you know, I, mean, I can do that. And I'm just grateful I can, you know. Was there a point that you began to enjoy that more? Yeah, there was. You know, I mean, it's kind of little things even. Even just having the dressing room to myself was kind of nice, you know. It started with my last tour in 2020, when I realized I wasn't going to be able to have my band at first, I was a bit down about it, but then when I realized, you know, this show, the solo show could be, you know, very personal, very potent. And I, so I said to my manager, well, if I have to do it by myself, I want to make sure all the venues are right. I don't want to be in a, a punk rock club playing by myself. I want nice listening rooms with pianos, nice, hopefully nice dressing rooms. And for the most part, they did that. They found all these small theaters and church venues and things. You know, so I would get into the routine of being, I love being backstage, you know, especially at a nice theater where you sort of, you get your, you know, you hang your suit jackets up, you're writing your set list, having a coffee. And I could really get in the zone. You know, at first, I didn't quite know what the show was, what I was, you know, what songs to play. But but after three or four gigs, you kind of figure out what your set what works and then you can sort of substitute here and there if someone requests a song or something and i just kind of stuck to that sort of formula on on my most recent tour so i I think eventually if i do get to play with my band it'll be an adjustment you know it'll be it'll be hard i think to have a bunch of characters around that i didn't really have to deal with the last few years you mentioned it's a bit like a grieving process do you grieve for the album as well because yeah you made the record you put it out once you've toured it do you feel like okay that's another one <laughs> another one gone you kind of do i mean some albums seem to have a longer life uh, and i definitely used to tour more in the past you know you'd be sometimes you would be you would head out in april and you wouldn't get home till december you know you just play 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 so yeah it is a bit of a you know you work so hard on the album to write the songs to make it and then it's just over in a flash. And I still, I was really proud of that album, and I was really glad that I could tour it. And I think it, it, the songs, uh, they lent themselves to this format, you know. But, I mean, you know, in a way, the album still has a life. People are still discovering it. And, you know, now, now I'm, in a way, I'm on to the next one. I'm writing songs for my next record. And that's usually what I'm most excited about is whatever the next thing is, whatever the new thing is. We just had Father's Day. Did you do anything special? You know, I didn't even know it was Father's Day until that morning when I saw someone tweet about it. So I called my dad because I'd forgotten to send him a card. And, you know, my son called and my, my daughter sent me a nice message. My treat on Father's Day was to be given free reign to do anything, like not to have to do any cleaning or cooking or any of that usual stuff so i knew this was coming up so i I spent most of the day listening to your catalog oh wow like the the entire thing well not actually not the entire thing i didn't start with the debut because i know that record pretty well i started with other songs and then i think i probably skipped long play late bloomer because i know that one and I, i skipped the rarities but then i went all the way through to the vivian line oh wow (laughs) <laughs> it was that's a big catalog it's 17 albums yeah i mean it's it surprises me that's for sure because i was 30 when they signed me so i all i ever wanted to have was a body of work i remember when the first album came out and i got all these i was getting these kind of good reviews 
I really felt that the pressure was on that, you know, I didn't want my to be a fluke or something. And so I really, it's funny because you make an album, but before it comes out, you're usually sitting for six or seven months in that time, you write a whole other album and then you're touring the first out. So there's always this sort of this space where, you know, when it's time to make a next record, you have your songs. And at least I do. And I was never in a position where like, oh, my God, I have to make a record and I don't even have a single song. So I think that's how I was able to do it, you know, to just because I I'd be writing while I was in dressing rooms and hotel rooms. I was right. I, I can do that. But yeah, you know, I mean, I, I'm just mostly amazed that I kind of survived it all because just for a guy who'd never sold a, a lot of albums, that there was enough interest in what I was doing that I could always, you know, find a new label or or something. And also, you know, I mean, I, I learned a lot along the way. I think I sing better now than I did in the beginning. I, I think I, there's certain things I'm better at problem solving when I'm writing songs, like how how to get to the bridge faster or how to you know, write an intro and, and this and that. When in the beginning, I, I really got a lot of, um, you know, advice and stuff from the producers I worked with, like Mitchell Froom was was very helpful. Yeah, I think you being so prolific has been that thing that's carried you through a lot of the natural highs and lows of being, you know, working musician. I had John Grant on the show a couple of episodes ago and he's not prolific so his struggle was like oh they want me to do a new record before i can be invited to play live or before i can do anything it's like there's this obsession with new new but you've never had that problem really because you've always been so prolific yeah and again i, I every time i do i finish now i think well maybe this is it i won't you know there was a period in fact all of 2020 i don't think i wrote a single song but that was during the pandemic and and my album had come out, my Hermitage album. But and then I was saying, oh well, maybe the well has gone dry, you know. But but then 2021 appears, and it was almost overnight. It was a matter of weeks or months, and I had the bulk of these Vivian line songs. And I don't know where even where they came from. So that that's it's a mysterious thing because I'm really not very good at anything else. So even when I, I've done a record, that I, I'm not in any hurry to make another one. I'll still the songs keep seem to keep coming, and uh, maybe that won't always be the case. But like I say, I mean, it's just it's good to make to, to feel like I'm contributing or making myself useful. And it's you know, I mean, it's kind of my sort of superpower if I have one is whatever you know to put lyrics to melody. It really is. I have to say, it was a very enjoyable experience on Father's Day <laughs> listening to your music intensively because I hadn't revisited your work for a while. And it was interesting to sort of see the varied styles between the albums. It's a gentle variation, but it's definitely there, you know, between the more elaborate productions like Retriever and Late Bloomer, which is more poppy and more production and more arrangement, and then the stripped back stuff. And I, I really enjoyed the stripped back sets, Time Being, Carousel One. I wasn't familiar with, with those records. At the time when you're making the record, how conscious are you that it's it's a change up or down from the previous one. What's going on for you in terms of the thinking there? Well, you know, with each record, I mean, you know, you, you have a new batch of songs and, you know, it's sort of informed by where you, where you are, you know, in your head or in your, in your life, you know. So all the songs are going to be different just naturally that way, you know, just because you're always kind of in a new a new face, even if you don't realize it. And then whenever I have a bunch of new songs, then I have to think, well, what do I do with them? You don't want to repeat yourself. So working with different producers helps because they, and I've worked with some pretty good ones. Obviously the Bob Rock one was a huge shift for me because that was like the slickest thing I ever did. But I was feeling like I was in a slump and I wanted to find someone who could, you know, for all the people who never got my music, I wanted to find someone who could, sort of frame them in a way, you know, that people would, would be like, oh, you know, and you're like, they're hearing me for the first time. And the, 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 I always found the right producer always kind of appeared just when I needed them. Like, Jim, Jim, <laughs> you know, like Jim Scott, he, who did Carousel One, he was such a cool guy. And I'd, I'd had a bunch of different producers for that album that had seemed interested and they backed out. 
you know, some some pretty big people too, like Tony Visconti and you know Don Waz even. And uh, so I finally landed with Jim Scott, and and he was the right guy to do that particular record. But you always get a sense. I mean, I'm probably too close to, but I do get a sense when I'm making an album that you know, like let's say the last one was more acoustic. Oh, this one's a little more electric. It's got more musicians on it. This one has strings. This one doesn't. My Hermitage album, I didn't play any acoustic guitar on that record at all. It was there. It's just all piano, and I, you know, I played bass. And you're always trying to find a way into it. Like, what can I do this time that's going to separate it? Obviously, there's a thread that runs through all my albums, and they're always going to sound like a Ron Sexsmith album. But there are subtle differences with each one, and subtle improvements in singing and sometimes production. You know, some of the, sometimes the early Mitchell Froome albums, uh, you know, the production wasn't quite right, or that my singing wasn't quite right. And I still feel with the Bob Rock album, I have a hard time with the sometimes the auto tune. You know, nobody else seems to mind, but sometimes my ear goes there. You know. Yeah, it's really interesting, sort of talking to musicians about those little things that niggled them about the record, though, and we just don't hear any of it usually as fans. The Art of Longevity is presented with Bowers & Wilkins, the revered British premium audio brand. Bowers & Wilkins makes some of the world's finest audio products, from the iconic 800 series loudspeakers, trusted by Abbey Road Studios for over 40 years, to the flagship PX8 wireless headphones. This is music as the artist intended you to hear it. The debut I was just fascinated to go back to, so I did that afterwards because I didn't realize at the time it was produced by Mitchell Froome, who's just turned out to be like one of my favorite producers. You know, the records he's made with Suzanne Vega and Los Lobos and others. So I went back to it and there it was, the signature sounds of Mitchell Froome, you know, the kind of clattering percussion, the Cajun style that, you know, it was all there. It was like really interesting. I didn't remember that at all from playing the CD back in the bad old days of the CD. Well, you know, a lot of that too was Chad Blake. Mitchell was the song arranger. He was like the George Martin. And Travis was kind of like this sound, uh, I don't know, maestro. You know, I mean, he, the way he would mic things, the way, I mean, nothing would ever sound the way kind of you, it was supposed to. And the way things were panned, you know. And I remember when I was making it, I was a bit nervous because I thought, well, the record company... It does. This doesn't sound like a, my, a major debut record. It sounded very kind of lo-fi, and so they didn't like it at all when I handed it in. They thought it sounded like a Tom Waits album or something. I just I remember feeling really vulnerable because they had my voice so up front on the record, and I thought it was going to turn people off. And they had all the instrumentation was very sparse and kind of underneath my vocal, which I mean ultimately I think it was a good direction because. It was stark, you know, and then the cover is just a picture of me. The record sounded like the way the cover looked, I think. Yeah. Looking back on it now, it was of its time because there was a, you know, a short window in the 90s when we were ready for that kind of stuff. You know, we'd kind of had enough of the sheen of the 80s pop and a lot of the early 90s grunge stuff. And so, you know, strangely of its time. I do feel that the grunge scene kind of, blew up the 80s and it made it possible for me to do my thing you know in a weird way i was kind of like the first songwriter on the scene after all that i mean obviously the 70s was all about singer songwriters but the 80s wasn't the 80s was about you know it was very inventive and very fun period of music but i couldn't get arrested in the 80s nobody wanted me i didn't have the look or, or the sound so all of a sudden in the 90s it was possible to be a guy with acoustic guitar again singing unironically about things and now there's so many of them but at the time i felt kind of like i was sort of the first one and uh i mean even before like rufus and all those other guys you know so but i didn't have the same success as those guys did because i like i think i don't i didn't sing well enough i feel like if i'd sang the way i do now back then that i would have maybe had a better chance of uh getting on the radio and all that yeah that's one of the things you just never can tell with with music and, you know, playing your catalog in that way, you know, getting to albums like The Last Rider, 
Well, in, in fact, late bloomer, I was thinking, okay, this is probably more like what the record label was asking you to make in the first place. But, you know, records come when they come. And as you say, what really interesting to hear about producers just sort of arriving at the right time. It's funny that. I mean, my original intention was just to do every album with Mitchell and Chad, kind of like the Beatles worked always with George Martin. And I think I would have been able to if those albums had sold better. But by the time we got to the third album, they had really sort of cooled off on me, the label. You know, they thought, well, I was actually surprised that we made a fourth album finished called Blue Boy, but they never put it out and it went somewhere else. But that was the time where they said, we'll let you make another record, but you can't work with Froome again. And then I, you know, so I ended up working with Steve Earle on that one. I thankfully I got to work with Mitchell a couple more times later on, because I think those albums, like I really liked Time Being a lot and I liked Forever Endeavor. I felt when I started, it was very much like master pupil when I was there to learn from Mitchell. And he had all this great advice. But when we worked on the later albums, I felt we were more on an equal footing. If you look back over the albums, is, do you have a personal favorite? Yeah, you know, the one album I really, I think really turned out nice was Retriever. I just feel that one had a, we had like the wind in our sails or something on that record because I'd been on this forever tour. And I was, I remember I was in New Zealand and I, I was heading home. I was so happy to go home because I'd been touring, opening for Coldplay and all this stuff. And my manager said, well, I think you should go to London because Martin Treffy's got a few weeks off. And he, he likes your new songs because I demoed them. And just go to London, make this album, then you can go home. And I remember being kind of, I don't know, I was upset about it because I was really my, mentally exhausted, you know. And so finally I said to Martin, because I, uh, I demoed about 30 songs. And I said, okay, I'm going to come to London, but I want you to pick the songs. Just tell me which ones you want to do and we'll do them. And so I get there. You know, he put a band together and we just started playing and everything sounded, I couldn't believe it in a way, the way things were sounding coming through the speakers. You know, every now and then there'd be this feeling like, oh, that's kind of sounds like a hit song, you know. And even Coldplay, when I was touring with them, I was writing a song called Not About to Lose in the dressing room. And Chris stuck his head in the door and said, well, what's that? That sounds like a hit. And so there was this real feeling of, of uh, you know, at first I didn't want to be there at all. and then and then. By the second day or so, I was just really excited by what I was hearing. This was uh, 2004. Oh, no, actually, it would have been 2003. Yeah, we, yeah, it would have been 2003. So I remember going home finally after making that record and really feeling like a sense of, uh, I was you know, just really glad that I did that, that I went and did it. And, and, you know, that album for me, I had in Canada, I had two top 20 hits. I had never had a hit before. And it also, that record, it opened up so many countries where I never did well before. All of a sudden, Spain and Germany were really, um, wanted me to come Sweden, you know. So I have a very, I have very fond memories of that record. I wish they would put it out on vinyl. That would be like a dream come true. Yeah, because the kind of music you make speaks to vinyl, I guess. But then when you were in that first half of your career, it wasn't really a thing, right? Everything was on CD. It was like, and, and now what have we done with all those CDs? You know, they've ended up in the landfill. Well, no, I, I missed the boat on vinyl. I'm, originally, I, I mean, I was happy to have a record contract, but I was a bit disappointed that, you know, the first half of my career was all CDs. But I mean, you know, at the same time, I could relate to a CD because it, it was still round. It had artwork and and this and that. But, but now I've seen about, I guess, seven or eight of my records that have have had a vinyl released. So that's exciting. But yeah, you know, and now people don't even, they listen mostly in their phones or, or whatever. Or. It's a really bizarre phenomenon because, I mean, I got back into vinyl. You know, I hit 50 and decided to go a bit of a nostalgia wave, but got back into vinyl. And, and you have a duty to then listen to the record, but actually you know, I still don't have the time. That's the odd thing about it. And now I have a collection which just makes me anxious because it kind of stares at me from the shelf and makes me feel guilty because I've not been putting the record on and just doing nothing else. I listen to records a lot. That's one things, uh, one of the things I do do. I mean, you know, when I usually post what I'm listening to. But I, don't, um, I am a bit of a dinosaur that way. I mean, I don't. I mostly listen to older, older things that I like. 
but I just love the crackle of the needle and we, you know, we don't have any very close neighbors. So I can, if I want to rock out, I can turn it up a bit and this and that. So, but I really, and we have a good, a good record listening room. It's something I always wanted. And so, no, so I, I do that a lot. And, but I know a lot of people are busy and they don't have time to do that. And so oftentimes I'm just listening, which I don't mind. And you can separate that process from music creation. You don't suddenly have to just spring up from the couch and take, turn the record off and go and get the guitar out. I don't think that's ever happened. I mean, I'm obviously, I was very influenced by the records I heard growing up and inspired. And I mean, it's different. If, I, if I'm by myself, I'm really listening to the record. I'm, I'm listening. But sometimes if we have guests, guests over, I'll, you know, I'll have the record on, but it's more like in the background and people are talking and whatever. That's fine as well. But yeah, you know, I, I never feel like, oh, I got to turn the record off because I just have this idea or something. The, the writing is a very separate thing from the listening of music. So I heard you say that you're a rock fan as well, a harder rock fan. I, I was interested in that because obviously that's something that hasn't necessarily come out in your music apart from maybe just occasional songs. Who is it that you listen to that you would say is hard rock? Well, um, mostly older th things, again, like I love, I mean, I was a big Who fan, you know, and I loved the Kinks. I mean, they became sort of a hard rock band in the 70s, the Kinks did, you know, they became like an arena rock band. But but growing up as a kid, my older brother Don had all the, you know, had Deep Purple, who I love, and Zeppelin, and um, all that stuff. I even, you know, I liked uh, Aerosmith at one point, I liked, uh, you know, I, even the some of the punk or new wave stuff that was kind of hard rocking, you know, that I, that I like some of that. And I, I think what happened with me is when I started, uh, when my son was born, I was 21 and I was really getting in for the very first time I was getting into Gordon Lightfoot and Leonard Cohen and all my, and it, for me, it, it was like, well, I can't really rock out like deep purple, but maybe this is something that I can do. Because I was a big fan of the Kinks and Nielsen and all the Beatles, and they were, it was song driven. So I found I found that my whole thing existed somewhere between the British invasion kind of music and the Canadian folk music that I became obsessed with, and and that that is where my sound is. And you know, if I go to karaoke night, I'm singing a Van Halen song or something. You know, <laughs> that's what I I love, but. You know, and it's good to know what you're not good at, right? It's good to know your limitations. I mean, it's one of those things, I guess, it, you know, as a musician, you have to find your style and you're always going to be, have come from other styles and love other styles. And it, it's just fascinating to me, you know, that someone like David Coverdale, who, you know, is the lead singer of Whitesnake, has, you know, written songs for Tina Turner and things like that. It's just, you know, it's incredible. No, it is. And that's the thing. People assume, well, if you play heavy metal, that's the only kind of music you like. But they're into other things, too. There's... No, no. I mean, Ozzy was a Beatles fan, just like the rest of us, right? Yeah, and I saw recently the singer from Judas Priest was singing with Dolly Parton recently on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You know, I mean, it's just in the music scene, there's not a lot of division. Everybody kind of is into what everyone else is doing. And it's mostly from, you know, the reviewers and things that kind of... Sometimes they'll put this in a box and our, our radio likes to put music in a box, you know, like, yeah, but uh, yeah, I listen to all kinds of things. I love all kinds of music. So, If I have an ambition at all with leaving a legacy on the industry side, it's, it's just somehow being able to turn that stuff upside down. You know, that, that need the industry has to put you in a box here or just, you know, put a label on you because most musicians just react really badly to that. Yeah, and, and I mean, I think as a kid growing up in the late 60s and 70s, I felt the radio was a lot healthier because, I mean, the radio, we'd be listening to AM radio and they would, it was all over the map, right? Like they would play uh, something like the Spinners or, and then play Badfinger after that and then play even something from the 50s, you know, and it was, you're hearing, you didn't really care what anybody looked like or what what era it came from or anything. And and so just everything was so melodic too. A lot of modern music melody has kind of taken a backseat to kind of repetition and uh, overwrought kind of singing and stuff like that. 
So, so I was really lucky. I grew up at a time when I was just absorbing all these different kinds of music. And it definitely left an impression on, on my own stuff. Thanks for listening to The Art of Longevity. I hope you're enjoying the conversation so far. Please take a moment to rate the show, leave a review on Apple Podcasts if that's where you listen, and do spread the word. Also, you can sign up via the Song Sommelier webpage for our newsletter, artwork, and much more. Back to the conversation. And you've made an impression on a lot of other musicians, so it's it's well known that you you have very famous fans. You mentioned Chris Martin and Elton John is a fan and all of that. And it's been, I know, repeated somewhat over the years, but it feels like they've been more vocal and more frustrated about you being not more commercially successful than you worry about. Did you just become sort of resigned to like what will be will be? You make music, you know, what happens commercially just happens. Well, I did feel sometimes that I was letting all these people down, you know, that while they were wanting me to be successful. And I was trying to be successful. I mean, it's a mysterious thing, you know. I mean, I think, again, on the earlier albums, I, I hadn't quite found my voice or I wasn't confident enough. And I didn't, the other thing I, I noticed when I toured with Coldplay, I would watch them every night and they had all these big choruses. And it made me realize that I hadn't written a chorus in my life. You know, I look back on, if you look at my first four, even five albums, I have a lot of refrains. And so by the time Retriever comes around, I've got all these choruses, like Whatever It Takes, Not About to Lose, you know, How on Earth, all these songs. And that was kind of the new thing for me. You know, I think I need work on. But so, yeah, so, I mean, I, I like that's why I think if I go back now, in the way and, and do those early albums over again. But I mean, you can't do that. It's kind of ridiculous to even say that. But I'm just lucky that, the, that enough people were into it, that I could have a career. Enough people thought I sang good and, and they've stuck with me along the way. I mean, objectively as well, just I read all the reviews and actually just doing the prep for this, you know, having listened to the records, I went back and read the reviews of the records. They're always really well reviewed like critically you're pretty revered and so there was no quality dip because part of longevity when i've i mean we actually did this we plotted charts of the critic scores and then the the chart scores there's always a creative misstep somewhere along the line but you don't seem to have had one of those i'm probably too close to it i mean i'm thankful that for the most part the press or whatever been on my side i think they see you know, there's a tradition I'm trying to uphold, you know, and there's, there's a certain, like, I've always said it before in other interviews, but I've always felt like I was making antique tables and chairs, you know, like trying to make good quality things that will will last. And I mean, I wanted, a, I wanted to have a single and hits and that. I wanted to be like Elton John, but I realized early on in my career that it was going a different way. Part of the thing about doing Long Player Late Bloomer was I had these songs that I thought could withstand that kind of production. You know, they, I thought I was like putting on my big boy pants in a way. And I, and also I thought I was singing good enough now that I could sort of rock out and do this kind of more muscular kind of record, even if, if, even if I just did it once. And that album did very well for me. You know, I had a couple top 10 singles in the UK and it sold well. And we did a, I got, it really built up my confidence in a way, you know, and, I wanted to be like Neil Diamond, you know, I wanted to go out there and just be really sure of myself. And so I, you know, that album did wonders for my, for my career, my self-esteem. But then when it came time to do the next record, the songs I had were very different and I didn't feel that kind of production. And that's the other thing that's good to know when you have a bunch of songs, you know, just because something else did well or was successful doesn't mean you should do that again because it won't work for it may not work for this particular batch. And so, so my career has had a lot of peaks and valleys, had some albums have done better than others. But, you know, some people tell me their favorite album is Exit Strategy of the Soul, which did not do well at all. And nobody... Yeah, yeah, yeah you're always going to get that. I mean, you have an audience and it's out there and it's rooting for you and probably their favorites are very different to the ones that you say have been obvious successes. But yeah, I remember Late Bloomer and hearing Believe It When I See It on the radio. I kind of didn't know where you'd gone in between. I was like, okay, yeah, it's great to hear Ron back again, but what's happened in between? And that's when you kind of dive in and you 
you look at okay man there's a lot of there's a lot of records there i suppose you know with longevity you got to keep going no matter what i think some of the the challenge for a lot of the musicians that i guess haven't quite gone past the 10 or 20 year mark is they don't know whether to carry on or not because when you're not having that affirmation or the markers of success it's tempting to give up well i definitely thought about that giving up many times you know you get discouraged oh this is my last record or whatever and then then you end up writing more songs and you think oh well you get excited again long player was like that too because i was so disappointed with how exit strategy of the soul did i was just sort of like um i'm it's over i'm done and i went to santa fe and uh i didn't even bring my guitar with me because i didn't want to write or anything but uh, my wife had rented a guitar down there. So when I get there, there was this really nice guitar. And I started, you know, I wrote Heavenly. I wrote a bunch of songs, you know, in a matter of days. I had about six of the songs from that that would be on that album. And then even then I was sort of nervous. Well, I don't want to just make another record again that nobody hears. Or And that's when I was on this quest to find somebody. And I think Bob came into my life like almost very like fate. I literally ran into him on the sidewalk in Vancouver and he told me he was a fan. And that was, you know, put the light bulb on over my head. And so it was sort of meant to be, I think. And uh, in every album, you, you have a feeling where you recorded and who who's producing it. There's also a feeling of it, it was meant to be, or there's a, this is supposed to be what's happening. And, uh, and you just have to trust that it'll be okay. Even if it's not the big, successful album it'll have its own character and it'll find its way into your catalog and it'll you know be you know it'll be someone out there it'll be their favorite album you know or something right? absolutely so. i read a great quote it was actually in one of the interviews i i read about you it was the i think it was the barney hoskins write-up about you in rocks back pages which is a while back but the quote was something about producers being a bit like film directors and the role they play is to just give the whole album a different tone or feel than just the songs would do how do you you work with a lot of different producers what's your approach do you put your faith in them you know you mentioned mitchell at the beginning and then more balanced later on in the career how do you work with a producer now how do you kind of cultivate the collaboration you know it sort of starts with the songs and like sometimes you have one producer in mind and you send the songs to him and they and they say, yeah, well, yeah, let's do this. Other times there's a bit of a search where you're talking to two or three different people and you try to find the one that you feel, you know, is most excited about the songs or has a vision. That's initially how I picked Mitchell. I'd met about 20 producers to do my first album and any one of them could have done a great job. But I just felt Mitchell was the one who was being the most critical of me and most kind of honest, you know, he didn't think I was very good at singing the rockers or up-tempo songs. So that's why I think we focus so much on the ballads early on, you know, so it's like, uh, it's really, you, you try to find someone that you feel connects with what you're, where you are at that that point in your life. And, uh, yeah, and sometimes just talking to a producer, you'll get excited, you know, they'll be like, Oh, I'm hearing like, you know, my most recent album, Brad Jones was like, I'm hearing this like a kind of like a Baroque pop record in harpsichords. And that kind of got me excited because I really didn't know how to approach it. And uh, so you, there's a feeling you get where you're in the right, the right hands, you know, somebody, you know, and then even in that there's, you'll have arguments because you'll have an A list and a B list and they may really like this particular song, but you know, that, maybe doesn't mean that much to you and you don't quite understand why they like it so much until you record it and then and vice versa you know like there was a song on the album on the vivian line that he didn't really like at all there was a couple actually but now he really likes them now that we we got in and, and did it you know he didn't really like for example this that and the other thing and he didn't really care for what was the other one I think it was uh, Ever Wonder, which I wrote initially kind of like a Beach Boy thing. And when we got down to Nashville, it sort of turned into like more of a Roger Miller thing. And that's always a sort of a happy accident and a nice surprise when that, when that happens. I mean, you're obviously very open-minded about it because 
you know, fallouts between bands and artists and, and producers are legend. And, you know, often it's, you know, an album is made and it's, it doesn't work. So a, a new producer comes in, but you found a way to kind of welcome their input, even if it's discounting a song that you might, might have written that you really like. Yeah. And, and even, uh, it happened with every producer, you know, there'd be songs that would get left off because the, you know, you just couldn't agree or like on my on third album, Whereabouts, uh, my favorite song on the record was Seem to Recall, but Mitchell didn't like that song. He didn't really want it on the record. And it was like the very last day of the sessions in New York City. And he knew it meant a lot to me, even though he didn't really understand. So it was kind of like, he just all of a sudden said, well, do you, do you want to try that song? Almost kind of like expecting that once we started playing it, I would say, yeah, you're right. It's not. It's not really <laughs> and so we went out back out to the studio because, you know, I think we'd finished early and we, and that's like what you're hearing is kind of like one take, like the first take. And that, for me, that, that was the savior of that record. Cause people, again, people tell me, oh, that's my favorite one or whatever. But I just think on that album, <clears throat> that was the one I was supposed to hit it out of the park. And I didn't, I didn't, I, I think the keys were wrong. I don't think I sang very well. Mitchell was going through some hard times and so was Chad. So the mood of that record was, was not very, you know, it wasn't a fun time. And so for me, seemed to recall is that saving grace, really, that record. And uh, it almost didn't, didn't happen. So Amazing, those little, those little details that you end up reflecting on as being, you know, fairly sort of random decisions that, that became important. The Art of Longevity is recorded at Cube West Studios in Acton and sometimes at the Cube East Studios in London's Canary Wharf. Cube is the world's first members studio for musicians, podcasters, and content creators, and it's a real sanctuary for London's independent-inspired creators. It's a real pleasure to record the show here. It's a long road since 95, when your debut came out. The changes as fans are obvious, right? The formats have changed, and there's a lot more music to choose from, that's for sure. What are the kind of biggest changes you've observed in your career from an industry perspective? Which are the ones that you favor and maybe don't favor so much? Well, I think early on when I signed to Interscope Records, they were like the biggest label at the time. Maybe they still are. They were just having so much success and they didn't really know what to do with me. Uh, I still to this day don't really know why they signed me, but... But there was a feeling back then that you could be what they called a cred artist, someone that got good reviews, because sometimes they could point to you, you know, like, well, we're not all just pop. We have, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Especially if they were signing somebody and they were like, well, I don't want I don't know why you want me on your label, because I'm like, an, you know, an artist. And then they say, well, look, we have Ron Section. You know, there was a feeling that you could that I could coast on that for a while, like uh I'll just keep doing my little records and hope, and hopefully I'll get one that does well or something. But there came a point I noticed around the th third album where that didn't seem to mean anything to them anymore. They were spending a lot of money on records and they wanted results. They wanted hits. Everyone was merging with each other, all the labels. Obviously, there was the internet coming along to, you know, the Napster and all that kind of stuff. It, so... Everything was shifting, and and I mean, I I'm such a you know small player. I didn't feel like I had any, I didn't have any say in the matter of what was going on. So I've noticed. So that was one of the big changes. Is there used to be this feeling that you could be just a respect, you know, an artist who the label liked having around, and uh, but it, but obviously it's changed a lot. I mean, we've seen you know the money they used to throw around for making records. The budgets changed. I mean, those early albums were like $300,000 and there's no way you could ever recoup that because, you know, unless you were selling triple platinum or whatever. So I, it definitely felt like there was this huge uh, fall from grace or something for the industry. And they have a whole new, it's a whole new business model now. And I'm just really, I'm really glad that I'm at this end of it, that I'm not just starting out now, that I was able to get in and have a career and make all these albums. And hopefully I'll get to make a few more, but I just, I, I wouldn't want to be starting out now. I wouldn't know how. And uh, 
there's just so much music. It's hard for anything to, you know, break through or connect the way things used to. Yeah, that's the number one problem for musicians starting out. And in fact, the their representatives, you know, the people who are signing them and marketing them. Because I guess with each new record now, because you essentially have your own label, Run by Rhymes. Nice, nice title. That's more of my publishing. Okay. I've co-publishing with so- with Sony. But I mean, I have been, I guess it is my own. I mean, I have been on Warner for a long time in Canada. I have been on Cooking Vinyl for quite a while now. And they're from the UK. And those two, you know, they kind of take care of the world. And there's been a bunch of different American labels. Um, but And does that mean anything to you? Like, do, is it important for you to work with a, a label partner that feels like, okay, look, we believe in you still. We, we're going to back this one. We, we think we could do something new with it. That means a lot to me because, I, again, I'm very old-fashioned. You know, and again, I mean, I, I'm a songwriter. I'm not a businessman. I'm not, a, you know what I mean? So I want to know that people that know about that are, are doing it. Or, they know how to get it, market a record. They know how to put it out. And it's not that I have high hopes that they're going to, you know, labels, they can't do a whole lot, really. They put your album out. Hopefully the album is a buzz. They get it to the press and this and that. And then the rest is kind of up to me and my agents and all that stuff. So also, the you know, having a label put up the money to do the record. That's important because I don't have any any kind of money. So... And just the feeling of being on a label with other artists and you look on the back and it says Warner, it says Cooking Vinyl, it makes me feel, and it's silly because it doesn't matter, but it just sort of makes me feel like uh, I exist, you know, like, yeah, because for me, make, I grew up in that, that period of record labels and, and I got to experience recording in New York and mixing in LA and recording in London and where a lot of people make their albums in their basement or in you know in the garage and this oh and yeah 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 I I see what you're saying I mean yeah look there's a real achievement to it and also there's a certain romance to it to getting it out with that label and you know in a vinyl package that says you know this is the contribution to the to the art and the canon and you do that so well going back and listening to the catalog and you know I was talking about your critical reviews but the songcraft is just so it's just so beautiful. It seems like it's almost impossible to have done that. I don't know how many times you've you've done it a thousand times. To me, the the craft of it is your, you know, obviously your melody. It's quite interesting to hear what you said about choruses, but just the way you use words and those rhymes. So for me, a great song is where you recognize some poetry in the lyric. Obviously, it's different. It's not a poem, but there is some poetry there. But also something like a seamless key change. It's just for me. It's just a. It's just a show of skill that it just does something to you, different to you as a listener. Are there some sort of tricks of the trade, or are there elements of songwriting that you really appreciate? Yeah, I mean, you know, when I started out, I was seventeen. I was playing the bars, doing cover songs, and um, I just remember every now and then stumbling upon a chord progression or something, and being really fascinated by what what they do, and you wonder. You know, like there's a song I used to do called Smile a Little Smile for Me, Rosemary by The Flying Machine. It's a song I liked as a kid. And there's a sort of a B section where it keeps going. It'll be like A minor to A major. And then it'll go to D minor to D. Like it keeps, and the, the major sort of makes it lift, you know, and, and and in a really catchy, really melodic way. And I remember years later, I'm writing a song called The Idiot Boy. And I kind of incorporated that idea on the bridge, and and, and you know, and, you, and there's uh, so many songs like that where you're you're kind of like, you know, like even you really got me by the Kinks when I first heard it. Why is this so exciting to me? It's because it keeps modulating, you know, and it's like genius in a way. And I'm sure he didn't think he was a genius. He was just like, you know, he was just writing it. It was really raw. So that's fun when you're in the middle of the song and you realize. You know, like in whatever it takes, there's a key change. And that just sort of happened. And then it was the problem was, or the puzzle was, well, how do I get back to the original key? And these are the things that just by doing it and experience, you learn, you get a sense of craftsmanship. And you realize, you know, Bacharach could do that. And all these other people, the Beatles could do that. They knew how to, and maybe they didn't know how to, always know how to do that, but they figured out. And I found learning the piano really changed my songwriting 
a bit too because it, all of a sudden it was right in front of me. Uh, oh, I can go to E flat now. I had no idea where I never would have thought to do that on a guitar. So, so a lot of it's trial and error. And when I'm demoing songs or writing songs, like in fact, now I have a batch of 12 new songs. What I do, I play them every day and I try them in different keys, at different tempos. And, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll decide, yeah, I think I want a key change, but then I'll try it and it seems a bit gratuitous or something, right? Yeah, so yeah, it's, yeah. And it's, so there's a lot, you're, I'm always thinking, and I'm sure I will demo these songs probably another three times before I make, make an album. That's where you see w where the flaws are and, and where the structural kind of things aren't quite sound. And uh, I was a great listener and I learned from all my heroes and I was fascinated by how they, how did they think to do this or, you know, all that stuff. I just totally absorbed and uh, to a point now where I'm almost 60 and I feel like, I, you know, I, I know sort of what I'm doing. Yeah, as you say that earlier, the problem solving element of it, right? Because the combinations are endless. So how you decide to resolve a problem in a song is is something that you've gotten better at, but also you're still enjoying it. You're, that's, you're having fun with that side of it. And, and, and still... Uh, a producer like Brad Jones, he had so many brilliant ideas that never even occurred to me. And it was almost annoying in a way because I would be down there and I would have all these ideas that are, are things I want, like harmonies and things. And I, and I would go out there and try it. And, and he would be like, that's really good, but why don't you do this instead? And he was always right. His idea was always better, better than mine. But, you know, and he had a few, he had a few structural ideas too, you know, I mean, I really worked on the songs before he heard them, and he really appreciated that. But when I got down there, we had a song called Outdated and Antiquated. I had this intro, you know, this kind of weird intro that reappears later in the bridge. And he, he had this idea of starting that intro in a lower key at the beginning and then doing it twice. And then by the time the song kicks in, it's in its, its right key. So even no matter how much I work on the songs and structure before anyone else hears it, there's going to be another guy like Brad or Mitchell who are going to have their this idea that that a cool idea that I hadn't thought of. And that's what I love, too, about the collaboration with a producer. That song craft as well is what connects you to the greats. Spotify pays you a great compliment because if you just play a Ron Sexsmith song and then you you let it play, you get Nick Lowe next, or you get Nick Drake next. <laughs> it's what puts you in that bracket. Well, I didn't know that, but one of the nicest things anyone ever said was uh, Mitchell Froom was playing my demos for Randy Newman. I wasn't there, and Mitchell called me later on, and he said that Randy, after listening to my demos, he said to Mitchell, I like Ron because he does the work. <laughs> you know? Then I thought, yeah, and that's true. I do do the work. <laughs> and uh, sometimes I'll hear a song that I kind of like by somebody else, but I don't feel like they've done the work. I don't feel they have a really good idea, but they didn't follow through with it. And, and then sometimes it's harder to apply that to my own stuff, but I can hear when a song is just like, wow, they really thought it through. The, you know what I mean? And and that's what I try to do. And I'm sure there's moments over throughout my career where I didn't quite get there. But for the most part, I, there's not a single song that I couldn't play you right now and feel, you know what I mean? Where I would feel like, oh, that's terrible or something. That is success in a way. Mm -hmm. A lot of the listeners to this show are up and coming creators. And they're kind of listening in to you know, learn how to do it, not just from a, a craft perspective, but the longevity thing and how to keep going. And they're not going to get chart success or they're not going to be playing big stadiums or arenas because a lot of that is changing for the working musician. For a start, there's, there's too many musicians, right? There's too much music, so not everybody can get there. To inspire that community from where you are now and you looking back on your career, how do you measure success now or how do you regard success for you in, in the industry today? Well, like again, I said earlier, I feel like a survivor in a way, like that I, I, I kind of lived through. I mean, I, I never, my career is not the career I envisioned when I was a kid, you know, but I, I have one. I made all these records and there's still interest for, you know, for my records 
not everybody, but the people who are into it, you know, that whenever I make an album, I know there's people around the world that are hoping to hear it or wanting to see me live. And that, that for me is kind of success or the fact that people, you know, I'll go on YouTube and I see people doing my songs on YouTube or covering different, you know, I've had a lot of people cover my songs yeah. that, yeah, of course. you know, Rob Stewart and all that. So and I feel, Feist, of course, famously with Secret Heart. Emily Lou Harris and different people, you know, Katie Lang did one. So that stuff is like the icing on the cake in a way. And I'm sure that'll sort of continue to happen. My Christmas song, maybe this Christmas, has been covered hundreds and hundreds of times. That's uh, one of my favorites, Ron. Thank you. We had a Twitter conversation about that. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. And and I just, uh, when you write a Christmas song, you you kind of hope it'll be one that people do. And I think I was I was trying to write about Christmas in a very real way, in a way that people, because it's not a such a happy time for everyone. And, and uh, so that's a feeling of success for me that it is no, no pun intended, but it's like an evergreen in a way people do it every year. And it's just, and that sort of went beyond my, you know, wildest dreams in a way. If someone comes to your music for the first time across 17 albums, where would you suggest they start? Well, I, again, I, I always like Retriever. There's things about my very first album that obviously that put me on the map that I'm really proud of. Because I really do feel when that came out, it it was a statement, you know what I mean? Like it didn't, not that we were trying to make one, but it, it didn't sound like anything else at that time. Like I remember hearing words we never used coming to the speakers and with this strange percussion on it at the top. And, and I remember wondering, what kind of music are we making here? You know, and I didn't want to have a knee-jerk reaction because Mitchell and Chad... I really loved those, the Suzanne Vega album and all the stuff that they did. And I was worried that the label would hate it, which they did. Um, so I always felt vindicated when the press got behind it. And, and now it's become, like, again, the record that put me on the map. It has some of my most kind of well-loved songs on it. You know, so I, I could, I guess I could say you could start at that one. But the thing with, you know, again, I sometimes I don't think I sang very well on my early albums, but... So I don't know, but but now I, I'm just trying to be, you know, like want to let all that go because I sang as good yeah. as I could at every point, and I'd like to think that. But I, I guess I would say Retriever or maybe my debut, just to get a sense of, you know. Then there's a few albums between those two records where the, you'll see growth in my singing and 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 that. Yeah, I was surprised by the Last Rider because it seemed to be okay. He's sort of going into. Gilbert O'Sullivan territory here and, and you know, 70s songwriters. So, but that was just another, another era. I was really proud of The Last Rider and I, cause I got to do it with my band. And that record to me, almost like Retriever had a kind of glow, like through, throughout the proceedings. You know, we just, we were having so much fun in the studio. We went to a big band house that was owned by the Tragically Hip, a, a big popular band over here. So we could live there, record there, you know, party there. And it, it was really fun, and I think that kind of shows on, on, on the record. Yeah, um, that makes sense. But but yeah, I mean, that's another album that it didn't do very well, but sometimes I'll, I'll say, hey, yeah, check that one out. I think that one's good. <laughs> well, Ron, uh, we don't have much longer. I find it amazing that you are to read your tweet about, you know, you're demoing songs already. You just came off a tour and another 17th album. What are you most excited about next? It's always uh, the songs. Um, you know, I'm also, I'm turning 60 next year, and I, I have an idea to do um, a, a bunch of shows called Sexsmith at 60, but I don't know yet if it's going to happen. It's just a, a moment in the dream stage, you know, and, but it'd be cool to do some shows with my band and where I play my, you know, kind of this retrospective kind of show. And so that's something I'm excited about. But I'm definitely excited about the new songs. Tomorrow I'll be demoing them, and then I'll hear where they are. I'll listen to them and say, yeah, you know, these are not quite ready or something, and I'll work on them again. I really like the idea of Sex Myth at 60, and I like the idea of just celebrating the new age bracket, 50, 60, 70, whatever it is. By then you have a catalog <laughs> and a craft that, you know, is something to celebrate at that age as well. It's pretty dignified. We need to get this off the ground. 
Well, I hope it, and we're working on it, but I, also it's the only decade that was sort of goes with my name with the X and you know what I mean? <laughs> yes. It wouldn't, yeah. it wouldn't have the same ring to if it was sex with at 70 or, you know, so, and again, if it doesn't happen, I'm fine with that too, but it was just this sort of thing I've, I put out into the universe and I'm just waiting to see if it happens. So. Well, that's the way to get things going. So I, I hope that comes off. And I yeah, would love to see you over here again with a band. Yeah, I hope so. I really hope so. But yeah, thanks so much for joining me, Ron. It's been a pleasure to talk to you and listen to you. And great to become a fan again. So I'll, I'll be uh, telling everybody else to do that. And good luck with everything you do next. Thanks, Keith. Awesome talking to you. Thanks, Ron. <laughs>